Hi, this is Smriti Kirmanandan, your host for Health Forward Podcast. One of the most important things you can do for yourself is to take care of your health. Your road to discovering an all-inclusive, empathetic, and innovative healthcare ecosystem starts right now. 2.37 billion people don't have access to food. With the war in Ukraine, rising inflation rates, lack of nutrition education, and limited tools for our farmers, along with a growing aging population, we are in a global food security crisis. We need a system that empowers us and leaders to drive this globally. Today, I speak with Arthur Cousin, CEO of Food Systems for the Future, former executive director of the World Food Programme, she is listed as Forbes 100 most powerful women and 500 most powerful women in the planet. Ethrin, I'm so excited and honored to have you share this time with me. Welcome to Health Forward. Well, thank you very much for having me. So we'll just dive right in. You were born and raised in Chicago and have taken this fantastic journey in your career. Share with us what has inspired you. What has inspired me? What a question. I grew up in inner city Chicago in a neighborhood that many would consider tough on on Chicago's west side, the Londell community. But I had the blessing of growing up with two parents who lived in that community because they were very committed to making change. Uh, They firmly believed in the Christian values of to those who much is given, much is required. And as such, we were the house that always had bats and balls that you kids could come and borrow um, when there were no bats and balls in the community. My mom kept a big box of them. Um, and so that was the kind of generosity that uh, was part of, of our basic value system. And I went on to live that life as part of not just my personal life, but part of my vocation. Uh, what can I do to make a difference in the world? I'll give you just one example from my childhood. When I was a kid, the riots occurred in the 1960s and my community was burning up around me as those protesters were making their frustrations known. Um, And during that period, I was about 10 years old. What was I doing? I was walking around from door to door of my neighbors, asking them to sign a petition to save the baby seals. Because for me, that was what was important to make a difference in the world. And needless to my neighbors thought I was pretty crazy. Um, (laughs) But my parents supported it. It was, if this is how you think you make a difference, regardless of what's happening around you, you found your place, you follow it. And that's what the way I've led my life. That's great. I mean, I could just hear your essence and how you just stand for what is your true calling. Mm-hmm. So share with us, where did you start your journey into the field of food and health? Mm. I never thought I'd be in food. I'm a lawyer by training. Uh, I began my my career working in a traditional practice of law. I knew that what I wanted to do was go back into the community and use those skills and that that diploma to address issues in in my community. And what, but and so I went to work for a small firm on the south side of the city of Chicago, 
But what became very clear to me very quickly was that the problems that people were bringing to me, the problems of housing and civil suits that were filed against them, even some of the criminal actions that came through our door, were they were, they were issues that were manifesting themselves as legal problems, but they were structural and systemic problems, problems of lack of access to to adequate housing, lack of access to adequate education, lack of access to employment and economic opportunities that pushed people to make decisions that were bad for them from a civil standpoint and unfortunately sometimes even from a criminal standpoint. And so I was putting band-aids on the lives of those that I was serving, but I was doing nothing to address the structural challenges. And so I began to work in different ways. One of the first things that I was able to do was work with one of our local county commissioners to create an affirmative action ordinance that provided an opportunity for businesses that otherwise would not have had the ability to contract with the county. And so those kinds of, of little changes that I was able to make in the system spurred me to continue to always want to do more. And so that was where this journey began, was just seeing that you needed to address the structural issues, the systemic issues that were creating challenges for people if you really wanted to help, if you really want to make a difference in, in changing our society. I love that you went from band-aiding to actually addressing the roots of these issues and it's just fantastic. It is not essential to have access to just food, but access to nutritious food. How do you recommend re reallocate the budget for farm subsidies? Because most of these subsidized crops are wheat, corn, and soy. Well, the, the reality is you're right. 60% of the kilocalories consumed by the, the average person is from those commodities, wheat, corn, soy, and rice, of course. But we need to repurpose our subsidies to ensure that what are considered today specialty crops, uh, fresh fruits and vegetables in particular, that we allocate more resources to support farmers that are working to uh, grow these products. Uh, and also providing the necessary insurance and training that is required to ensure that those, those types of farms that come online are sustainable and financially successful, uh, to expand the opportunities for more farmers to plant and harvest the, the foods that will make those more nutritious foods affordable as well as available, which means that we need to concentrate more on building the strengths of small farms and establishing the more support inside of USDA for small farms and for small specialty farmers. And for younger farmers, we need to provide the support and promote local and regional production to ensure that um, the processing of food at the local level makes it more affordable, requires less production time, less uh, processing to maintain the sustainability of that food through a, a long value chain by reducing the length of our value chain. I am not going to suggest that we will not continue to have subsidies for large farms, but we should also ensure that the percentage of 
subsidies for small farms, for farms producing specialty crops, for dairy farmers that are supporting the type of access to more nutritious dairy products, that those farmers are receiving the adequate support as well in our farm subsidies, from particularly from the farm bill. You have served as the executive director of the United Nations World Food Program, impacting 80 countries and serving more than 80 million people. This is such an honor. What are some challenges and wonders you have seen in this period? One of the things that I was made starkly aware during my the, my opportunity to serve as executive director is the commitment of women and fathers in every place around the world to providing for access to food for their children. You know, we often think about people over there and that they're different from people here in the United States or in other parts of the developed world. There is no difference. There's no difference in the mother's desire to ensure that her child does not go hungry. And there's no difference in the desire of that mother to first and foremost want to provide that food for herself, for herself. We often think that people are waiting for us to provide them with assistance. The only reason people stand in a line for food is because they have no other choice. That the climate has affected their ability to grow food, that the the logistics have affected their ability to market what they've grown to provide the financial assistance that is necessary for them to have enough resources from from harvest to to harvest and so when those situations occur what we did as at WFP was ensure that we had the resources that were necessary to meet those needs but what really made a difference was when we were able to partner with other development operators with the private sector with government to give particularly those small farmers the seeds the tools the knowledge the capacity that they needed for them to grow their own food to grow enough of that food to not only feed their own family, but to provide for their own financial needs that would ensure their ability to avoid standing in that line. And that's what every mother said to me, help me help my family. And for me, I I wrapped my arms around that challenge uh, to, to help those mothers, not just to provide the support, but to provide the support for them to take care of themselves. This makes me emotional. It's just so powerful and empowering and so simple and foundational. And it's startling, as you mentioned, to hear that this is where we are in this mm-hmm. ever so developing country and world. You know, we're not solving this problem in a silo format. We need a buy-in from private and public sectors and mobilize these troops. So where are we now and how do you think this is going to play out? Well, we're not in a good place right now. We're sitting, as you and I are sitting here speaking today, we are not just on the verge of a of a looming high food price crisis. We're right in the middle of it. We're seeing prices of food in places where people were already struggling to afford food. We're seeing prices of food doubling. We're seeing people take to the streets in places like Sri Lanka, where they can no longer afford the, the, the cost of bread. Um, and even more devastating, uh, or or should be as devastating for and disconcerting for all of us, is that in addition to that immediate challenge, what we're seeing is that because of the high price of fertilizer, that 
farmers are planting less and are expecting less in the next harvest. And so the potential for us to move from a, a high food price crisis to actually a food availability crisis is quite high, is quite probable, unless we make the kind of interventions that are necessary right now, because we're in the planting season in West Africa, in East Africa, where the percentage of those who are food insecure, we've seen increase exponentially over the last five years. So our failure to not only meet the immediate needs of this high food price crisis, but also to support smallholder farmers with the preemptive support that is necessary will mean that the crisis will only continue and increase in its impact as well as in the severity of that impact um, for those affected populations. And to make it even more chilling, the UN just released the state of food insecurity about two weeks ago. And in that report, they definitively say we as a global community are moving in the wrong direction to achieve the sustainable development goals. And our goal of achieving zero hunger, they're beginning to suggest unless we make significant changes in how we are supporting the populations that we've been discussing, we will see not just zero hunger, but as many as 670 million people who remain food insecure and hungry in 2030. That's astonishing. And, you know, other than being proactive, and as you mentioned, really addressing these issues at a ground level, it's surprising to see where we are. And I believe- But let me just say to you, we don't need to stay on the same pathway. And you said it, we need, yes, repurposing of the $670 billion in subsidies that um, that are provided to agriculture on an annual basis. We need private sector investment in the both the, the biological tools, the digital tools, the capacity building that is necessary to increase the productivity of smallholder farmers. And we need to ensure that we are meeting those humanitarian needs, but also coming together to support that progress that is necessary to change the trajectory that we're on and we can still achieve the sustainable development. You said that so spot on. And food insecurity, as you know, impacts the healthcare value chain as it increases disease states. How do you believe healthcare has to address this more proactively? You know, here's our biggest problem with our healthcare system today. We don't have a healthcare system. We have a sick care system. We don't provide the assistance that is necessary to keep people healthy. We don't provide, whether it's from an educational standpoint or the access to the appropriate foods that are necessary, um, none of that happens until the onset of disease. With the onset of disease, we begin to intervene with historically medical interventions. You're now beginning to see new programs like produce prescription programs that many of the insurance companies and healthcare facilities and governments are supporting. But why do we wait until you need to give a prescription for disease before we make 
we provide the financial assistance that is necessary to ensure access to the foods that we know can prevent those diseases. And so we need a medical community that recognizes that many of the diseases that they are treating are diet related. And so uh, providing the access to the nutritious food that is necessary to avoid those diseases, we need the medical community in partnership with the food systems community to support driving that demand, helping us drive that demand for the increase in production of more nutritious foods. I believe more than the system, as individuals, we are accountable. How do you encourage people to eat healthy within a budget? You know, my mother had this saying, or has this saying, she's still with us, when you know better, you do better. And when we provide the information that is necessary, mothers will make the right decisions for their children. There's not a mother out there that is going to deliberately feed her children in a way that will create obesity or other diet-related diseases. And so it is the first goal is to ensure that we start at an early age with providing children with the knowledge that is necessary. What is, what is, what is good food? And that is not to say that indulgent foods we should avoid, but they shouldn't be the center of our plates. They should be just that. They should be treats. The center of our plate, we know, should be occupied by um, fresh fruits and vegetables. And providing that knowledge, but then also making those foods affordable and available to ensure that you are not driving a, a demand that cannot, that is, that's that mother, that family is unable to fulfill. And so we need to work uh, simultaneously on changing consumer demand and supporting the ability of the consumer to meet the demand for more nutritious food by ensuring that we're also supporting the production of and the availability of affordable nutritious food. So if we can get those two sides right, that's when we be can begin to make a, a difference in the health of all consumers. You're 100% right that increasing abundance of nutritious food reduces the cost and makes it more available and also reduces disease state and reduces healthcare cost. Surprise, we live in this ecosystem where the healthcare costs are high, but the wellness cost is so low. And mm -hmm. you know, just solving that simple issue saves us a lot of money, time, and disease. Well, so you know, you, what you talk about that saving us money, time, and disease, the AMA only recently has now suggested to medical schools around the country that they make nutrition a mandatory course. Doctors weren't taught nutrition. And so why are we surprised if that is not in the arsenal of tools that we give to our medical professionals as part of their learning? We can't expect them to provide a tool which they are untrained to support. And so that changing that at the very edge of foundation of medical school education to make that part of what the doctors believe is important in how they and what they provide to their patients is a is a significant positive step forward that we should all applaud. Predictive AI is now being introduced in this space to predict plants growth and ensure a sustainable abundance of diverse produce. What are your reflections on this? We need all the technology we can get. 
to help us do a better job of, of creating more sustainability in our agricultural system. I, I am I'm supportive of AI, I'm supportive of digital tools, I'm supportive of new biologicals tools that support seeds that require less water, that are also drought resistant. All of those new tools, bringing them online. But what is also very important is that they not come online as they are presently for only affluent farmers that they come online for farmers, for small farmers, as well as for what we call smallholder farmers, those who produce, those 500 million smallholders who produce 80% of the food in the, in the places where they operate. And so the, the challenge that we have is that the system for funding the development of those tools demands immediate and high returns that make it less likely that those tools are going to, as they say, trickle down to those who could benefit most from it. And that's what we must change. You're now the CEO of Food Systems for the Future. Share with us your current work and what is your vision with this organization? Well, if, if flows right from the question that that you just asked me. How do we make those tools more available? Um, by working as as the food system, the goal of food systems for the future is to identify those companies and become part of the capital stack to support the investment in those new tools that will ensure that they're available to lower income farmers so that we're making an impact, but also the financial return that is necessary to support the investment that is required to continue to develop those tools and to continue to expand the, the, the availability of the tools. The part of the work that we perform is not just providing the financial assistance, but also the ecosystem support, the, the supporting the policies that are necessary to ensure, for example, the changes in, in government subsidies that will make the more financial resources available, again, for the provision of the tools that are required to support the more sustainable intensification and other ag uh, aspects of regenerative agriculture that will support uh, farmers' abilities to grow more productively and more sustainably. And because we're agnostic on where we work across the food system, we're also looking at how do we invest in here in the United States grocery stores in uh, low-income areas that we now call food deserts because they don't have access to food stores. Or in Sub-Saharan Africa, working with a company to address the, the, the new feed types uh, for or animal feed that will provide more access to affordable animal feed that can increase commercial production of animal protein in a way that, what if we could provide eggs at an affordable price in places where children are suffering from stunting? So those are the kinds of projects that we are looking to both provide the financial assistance support as well as the ecosystem, what we call the wraparound support to in, in scale up those businesses that can make a difference um, and to provide that ecosystem, to develop that ecosystem that will ensure that that scale up makes a difference in the life and in the nutrition outcomes of the communities where these companies uh, operate. Love your passion. Love that you'd have this wraparound strategy to address it ground up and top down. You've been ranked as 100 most powerful women by Forbes and one of the 500 most powerful women on the planet. What does this mean to you? 
well, it made my mother really happy. <laughs> but what it means to me is that, and I appreciate your recognition of my passion for this work and my passion for the outcomes of, of creating a world where everyone has access to nutritious food, affordable nutritious food. What, it, what those types of, of awards and recognition do is provide the opportunity for opening of doors, for giving me the audiences that I need to support both the financial investments that are necessary, as well as the political support that is required to change the policies. And so the more recognition of the value of the work, I take as the more work that I then can perform to make the change that is necessary to achieve that ultimate vision. You have clearly shown that as a leader, using power for the right intention is required, and you're clearly doing that. So, so grateful for your leadership. If you have to share three takeaways for the future of health, what would that be? First of all, ending diet-related disease. We should not, the, the trillions of dollars that we spend globally on diabetes and high blood pressure and asthma and even some cancers that are directly related to to our to diet to what we consume we can change those outcomes so that's one i think the other would be making good food affordable and available for everyone you often hear people say we grow enough food you're absolutely right we grow enough of the foods that we started this conversation talking about those commodity crops but we don't grow enough nutritious food to make it affordable. 3.1 billion people can't afford access to a diverse and nutritious diet. 3.1 billion people, underscore that, cannot afford a nutritious diet. That means we need to grow more of these foods and making them more available and making them more available where people live, not just in certain parts of the world, but certain populations. So that would be two. And then the what drives hunger and malnutrition, those numbers, that 828 million number that uh, was recently reported in the state of food insecurity, the two primary drivers today are climate and conflict. And if you ask me, you ask me my big vision. My big vision is that we will address the climate issue in such a way that those who are most vulnerable, who are most affected by this climate crisis, that we can avoid those challenges and reduce that number because we have, we are as a global community addressing uh, the, the impact on climate, on agriculture. And then conflict. I, be I believe that we must support as a, as a global community, the, 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 the tools that are required to ensure peace and security around the entire world. Because without peace and security, we're never going to achieve a world without hunger. Thank you so much for joining me today. It was such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. Thank you for listening. This is Health Forward Podcast, and I'm your host, Smriti Kirbanandi.